Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Are we comfortable with a world with remote surveillance where cameras can pick out a face from a crowd? How do we feel about artificial intelligence making decisions, such as whether someone's actions could be suspicious? And what are the security concerns around the data that makes all this possible? Our guest today is Tony Porter. He was previously the UK's Surveillance Camera Commissioner and is a former senior police officer. He's now the Chief Privacy Officer at Corsight AI, a developer of facial recognition software. He argues that surveillance, biometrics and even AI will make us more secure, but only if we can secure the technology itself. And that's even more important as that technology becomes more widespread. There are now an emerging number of uses, lots and lots and lots. And effectively, it can be either to keep people safe on the streets, to identify people who uh, are wanted by the authorities, recognised as being dangerous, or even identify people who are recognised as being vulnerable. Um, and even within that small sort of sector, you, you can distill it into any number of causes. So that's the sort of uh, key one for law enforcement. Um, but if you allow your mind to wander, you can start to see any number of reasons why it might be extremely useful. Access to sporting stadia, um, maintenance of secure areas in, in any public sector. So we've been engaged with uh, large American sporting ventures that want to keep people who are not authorised to be amongst their key players and the physios and the staff away and to notify if somebody has got into the area that shouldn't. Um, and as I think you said in your question, uh, routine access control. Um, anybody that loves sport will undoubtedly have been left in a queue outside waiting for people to look in their handbags or the wallets for the, the season ticket, then access it, then wait for it to be recognised. Whereas with facial recognition, uh, you can reduce that time to close to zero and allow people to access because they're known by the stadia. They want to be known by the stadia and uh, they gain access without uh, being prevented or without having to have that blocker. I could talk, Stephen, for quite a while on that, but I hope that gives a flavour of the use cases. Potentially, it's very broad, isn't it? Because it's one of these technologies that sits in the background and potentially could be opened up for other applications, such as access to public transport, getting in and out of buildings, essentially anywhere where we're used to having a physical barrier and possibly a human being checking somebody could make use of this technology. Indeed, and actually even, um, even removing the kiosk facility, there's a case in Scotland where school children uh, have now been allowed to use facial recognition rather than looking in the pockets for 47p for a, whatever it is they're buying. They can uh, acquire what they want to purchase and it's automatically registered, provided, of course, the parents are happy with it and there's proper data controls around it. Uh, you can start to see, you know, is anybody going to object to the child having hot food? I don't think so. And really, when you look at what the risks are, is there really a privacy risk? No, it's been decided there isn't. So these are the sort of use cases. Allow your mind to wander and it can take you almost anywhere. And one of the real benefits of this type of technology, and I think we found this out during COVID, was, of course, it doesn't require anyone to touch anything. Well, exactly. And um, 
you know, sadly, um, we, we experienced COVID and I think most people recognize that it's a risk that we can't rule out. Um, and yeah, it, it will be a tool to society going forward, um, knowing that they can, they can utilize that kind of software. And of course, the very best software uh, can not only allow that kind of non-touch access, but can also allow access when people are wearing masks and their faces are actually quite largely um, sort of concealed. So you, you can start to see the, the any number of areas. And I know we'll probably go on to discuss the risks, but I think at the moment we're outlining how uh, facial recognition can be a force for good in society. The flip side of that, of course, is that it doesn't require necessarily the person to know that they're being surveyed. So if you ask me for my ID card, I know I'm handing over my ID card. If there's a screen that requires me to touch a fingerprint reader, again, I'm actively doing that. I'm putting a card in a ticket barrier to get onto a train station platform. All those things require my active participation. One of the reasons that people are perhaps somewhat suspicious of facial recognition is because it can be done from afar. And whether that is science fact or science fiction, you're far better placed than I am to explain that. There's a certain degree of discomfort among the general public about this idea that you can pick people out from a crowd. And of course, a lot of the publicity that's being generated by organisations in this industry suggests that you could do exactly that. Yeah, and, and actually, uh, there is an element of truth in that. And I think it's important to recognize those concerns. Um, but the reality is that the use of facial recognition should be supported by very strong policies. Certainly, my company uh, advise our clients to make sure that a proper and effective data protection impact assessment is completed. And one of the key components in that is make sure you have a transparency approach what does that look like? Well, we insist that there are signage that are clearly visible at entry access points advising that there is facial recognition, that the impact assessment allows any concerned member of the public direct contact details to raise any concerns. And also, don't forget, this is simply data. And in, let's take the UK, uh, the citizen has the absolute right to request uh, subject access data from the person who is controlling, from the person who's using facial recognition. Um, so when you start to recognize that there are uh, very key guardrails, and guardrails is a phrase that is now oft used, that are there to protect the public, it does really circle back round to what are you concerned about? And if the concern is about the efficacy, the transparency of the control using the software, well, then that could be valid. But let's face it, um, anybody using anything inappropriately or unethically, whether it's a car, whether it's a knife or a fork, could use it in a way uh, that was contrary to, to the, the rights of the public. So, you know, we have to have a degree of faith in the maturity of our systems, of our laws and our regulations. And we also need to make sure that we were not doe-eyed about this. And we, we recognize that those guardrails need to be enforced and need to be upheld. If we look at the market for facial recognition technology overall, though, 
is much of it actually quite mundane and therefore it is things like controlling access to a venue or to a data center or replacing barriers and gates and those type of things and actually the number of installations that are you know remote cameras or UAVs flying around picking out individuals from a crowd probably quite small in terms of the overall percentage of deployments of this technology. I think again it's a fair point and actually point the listeners to the fact that facial recognition is used at most of our ports and borders and in fact globally most ports and borders millions of people tens of millions of people a year happily go through the gate opens and they exit or in fact sometimes the gate doesn't open and it's even more annoying many people use facial recognition to open the laptops the telephones now many people are beginning to use it to open the vehicles so you know people will recognize that an uh, an easier life smoother access in a modern complex world isn't a risk to them so i think your point is excellent the majority of use cases perhaps are not contentious but we also recognize that some are and and the, there is questions about how do we manage that we're putting a machine into an essentially human process. So at the start of this interview, you had your camera on. Unfortunately, I didn't have mine on, but you had your camera on. I could see you. I could recognize you. I could do a quick match of that from your biography that I'd already read. So I know it's you. And that is a, a really important human element of how we establish trust. So how we establish trust in working relationships before we conduct a transaction, all those things. So why are we so concerned? Why do we become uncomfortable when a machine is part of that trust process? Well, I, I think largely because if we're being brutally honest, we're looking at a black box that contains some very highly technical software that people don't understand. And of course, I, we've, we've never been shy at recognizing that. And part of the route to trust is allowing people to understand what's in the black box and how it works. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, uh, you pointed to my regulatory background before I joined Corsite. I was very clear when I joined that we would uh, deconstruct and then reconstruct the software so that it was compliant with all the current legislation and had an eye on emerging. And one of the key things I was focused on was what is known as human in the loop or human on the loop. And I wanted us to be able to point to every element of our decision-making configuration of the system to be able to support and underscore the fact that it's the human that operates our software. And you will see that at every step of our process. Others perhaps aren't and others perhaps are, but from, from my posture, um, it's, it's key to, to trust and uh, confidence in the public use of the software. And now you do make use of artificial intelligence in your systems and competitors do as well. What is the AI component of that actually setting out to do? Why are we using AI and what does the AI system achieve? The AI enables the software to understand the imagery that's placed in front of it. Uh, our particular software is called Autonomous AI. So it allows us to move from the first concepts of the capture of the face 
And as the face moves, as, as heads and faces do move in society, it allows us to reconfigure and enables the software to uh, understand the the identity of the individual, even though that individual might be at an angle of 90 degrees, or even if the height of the camera is set at an oblique angle, where or an acute angle, rather, where most software won't identify. So it, it actually talks to itself, it receives the imagery, it takes the biometric signature, and then by use of the, the software, it allows us to understand if we have a recognition or not. So what controls do you have to put around that in order to ensure that, for example, the training data that the AI uses doesn't introduce bias or other problems? It, again, this is an area where people are more broadly concerned with AI, not specifically AI and surveillance systems. You will not be surprised to note that one of the key things that I was focused on, like a laser, was bias or indiscriminate sort of unfairness, uh, which is a phrase I prefer when we talk about um, differences in recognition between uh, people of different minority ethnic status or gender status. Um, so we, in the first instance, made sure we acquired a training database that had lawfully and legitimately been established. And actually, we went through a process of six months of due diligence with the, the very reputable company uh, to ensure that was the case. And it, it was quite interesting to receive the positive feedback, albeit I made it particularly difficult for them to evidence. So the, the first thing is a database that is legitimate and lawful. And then the next, I think, is internal analysis to identify um, how our software will develop an unbiased or a, a fair outcome. And we will overlay um the database with synthetic database we will make sure we aggregate so that we are comfortable that we are testing against fair and equal uh members of society citizens of all walks of life and in doing that and that was no mean feat um we happened to come top in the uh, global international testing on bias elimination um, and that's not to say, however, that we are complacent because other companies will advance rapidly. We recognize that. But at the moment, we are used as the benchmark to demonstrate that we, we don't have that indiscriminate nature. And how important is it that you're transparent about this? I would say it's probably... Uh, the most important part of our business. I would hasten to add that as Chief Privacy Officer, I would say that. And I would also, in terms of transparency, recognise that I might have to fight in a corner with my fellow senior colleagues who might say that high-quality software or high sales or ensuring that we are the best in low lumens of light uh, is more important. And that's good. That's a sign of a healthy company. There is real tension. We pull, we push, and uh, we engage in these very, very interesting conversations at Privacy Board, which I chair, uh, which are minuted. And, and it, it, it really is a form of internal transparency. And, um, you know, it's something that I picked up from my regulatory background and, and would urge other companies to, to take on board. Where do you see facial recognition sitting in alongside other biometric technologies? And there's lots of different ideas being worked on in academia, in industry, things like analysing people's gaits, uh, voice recognition, 
voice prints, these type of things. And some of them have quite niche and focused use cases. Some of them potentially could be used to start tying into things like behavioral analysis, which again is another area which has a lot of ethical concerns. You know, again, a human surveillance operator, whether that's someone monitoring a camera or somebody you know, patrolling the streets as a police officer, or indeed um, you used to do in in a previous previous life, uh, there's a there's a feeling, isn't there? There's there's a gut feeling, a sense that something's not quite right that would prompt a human operator, even of a CCTV system or a human police officer, to investigate further. Where do we go with that? Is that something that the technology can help with, and does does it provide guardrails as you described it, or does it potentially provide a different type of aspect, which is to channel what people might be looking at into areas which might then trigger bias and unfairness. I do quite a a lot of work with global law enforcement agencies, and there is a very real drive to develop multi-sensor capability for biometric identification. And you can see the reason behind that. Uh, If it is possible to blend facial recognition, gait analysis, sound of voice, I mean, who knows, uh, smell, DNA, touch, um, you can start to see how software or outcomes that sensitive and that accurate and that technical uh, may well be extraordinarily useful for law enforcement intelligence agencies. You could start to see how that would be quite scary for civil rights groups who are uh, looking at the development of the software thinking this is Orwellian. Uh, and, and this is why... Uh, there needs to be transparency and understanding. And, and the last phrase is, is really important. Many of the people that naysay this technology, in my view, do not clearly understand its capability. Uh, for example, facial recognition, in my view, uh, is not likely to bring about Armageddon, like the data technicians and, and uh, open chat uh, specialists were saying could happen with generative AI. Um, this is really uh, simply around facial recognition. However, multi-sensor, Um, could well be a complete quantum shift. So I I do think um, we we need to continue to develop. I have, as you know, had a a very long intelligence background, national security background, and I can think of many occasions when that kind of blend fusion of capability would have created a much softer and less, less dangerous national security posture. Um, i.e. what I'm talking about, to have a sensor say that we are 99.999% certain this is the subject that you have been after, uh, would be an amazing boon, whereas at the moment, often you're left to the human eye. So, yeah, I I support moving forward. I'm not a Luddite, uh, but equally, I do recognise the concerns of the civil rights groups, and they have to be met. But I've never said they don't, but they do have to be met. So done right, actually, this could remove some of the tensions around a potential incident or a potential surveillance operation or something of that nature. If you think, for example, about public order, you know, the the mere presence of police forces on public order activities with the shields, with the helmets, with the vans can provoke some groups into behaving in a different way. If some of that could be replaced by a distant system which actually has that intelligence, maybe that would cool the situation down. Could you see it working that way? I can, but with a caveat. Um, I, I I still have in my head that it's very important not to cast a chill shadow across our societies. 
Um, and what I think is required if, if we move to that position is very clear and transparent communication with whomsoever is it. Let's say it is a public order situation, that there is regular updates from the police commander, that there is signage, that um, the, the protesters know that whilst the police may be backing off because this is an area cast as heightened tension, there is now biometric processing underway. Uh, then that is more honest in my view. But it equally needs to be supported by other guardrails that support that honesty. So let's just say uh, if there is a database of people that the police are concerned about at that gathering, that database has to be lawfully and effectively compiled. It has to be subject to some kind of scrutiny. Uh, there has to be limits to it. The public, when they are aware of it, need what we want is people to go, yeah, that's fair. That's fair enough. And there needs to be some form of, some form of inspection around it so that, um, you know, people don't just hear the police saying, we're the police trust us. It's a case of we're the police. These are the processes. And there is a body that uh, will oversee and uh, be quite focused that we are complying with um, the law and regulation. So, but yeah, in short, I do see that as a solution, Stephen. When this technology is used more broadly by whether it's border controls or businesses for entry control, replacing ID cards and that type of thing. Do you think then familiarity will make people more comfortable with it? And if they see that it can be used in a legitimate way in a more low-key manner, then there would be more acceptance of its use in the public domain. I do. Yeah, I do. And I think uh, that acceptance will link very closely to greater understanding, a lack of fear, uh, but actually, the, the key pain that the software is there to remove is the rapid throughput. So I used to work at one of the major banks in uh, Canary Wharf. And at any given time in the early morning, you would have between 500 and 1,000 people waiting to get through six turnstiles by, by showing a card. I'm absolutely convinced that every single one of those employees would have been delighted to have walked through into their workplace without that queue. Uh, and, you know, I think that level of confidence will grow. We're already seeing it globally. Um, and, um, you know, public will public will recognise that this is a force for good. Nonetheless, there still has to be guardrails, but it, it's that very neat balance we've discussed. The other aspect of building confidence, though, is security, because there's a lot of sensitive information. And again, one camera observing one location is one thing. A network of cameras which can then interpolate journeys between, you start to add in intent, potentially, the way someone is looking, are they behaving in an agitated way, then making inferences about what might underlie that behaviour or what might be driving it. You're starting to ratchet up the need for really good security here. Yeah, I think um, uh, so in terms of security, uh, I think most companies now, and supported by the GDPR, have an obligation uh, to be secure by design and by default. And even when we move to the cloud, so if we move from on-prem, on-premises to the cloud, um, most of the cloud facilities on offer have the very highest level of security of data. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, security and uh, interpolation of that data is quite interesting. I mean, you look at anybody gets in a car, drives down the road, is hit by AMPR, 
goes to a bank, the digital footprint from the bank is recognized. In their pocket is a mobile phone that's sending cell site signals. Link that to other data such as facial recognition uh, or, or any one of a number of data footprints that we leave. And you have the capability and capacity, not just to find out what car somebody drives, but what the lifestyle is. And, um, you know, I, I think it is a legitimate observation to say, well, we do want some guardrails because whilst we accept this is for the benefit of society, we actually do not want it to uh, put a chilling effect we 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 want it to benefit us not not stimulus and i think um uh, i think we're finding a very good balance in society and you know back in the day people objected to anpr now they recognize generally uh, it identifies people who are wanted it helps the police on county lines and we will see that with facial recognition when the confidence is there and the police are seen in in this instance to to deal with it in a uh, well-processed, uh, well-overseen manner. I think people will think, OK, it's nothing to be frightened of. So aside from the technical security measures, such as strong encryption and making sure that the servers are in a secure location, that there's proper authentication and audit trails as to who has access to that data. So all that stuff behind the scenes, which which is achievable. How important is it then that as an industry you actually advise your customers and your clients about the information that they should and shouldn't gather and shouldn't shouldn't keep. So one of the concerns that people have in the privacy world is that actually we're gathering too much information and we're keeping that information for purposes as yet undefined, not necessarily nefarious, but as yet undefined, just in case. And there are plenty of people in data science who come at it from the view that I want as much information as possible and I'm going to keep all the information potentially forever, because I never know if it might be useful. And that just doesn't work in your world, does it? It certainly doesn't, no. And uh, again, a good point. The The key focus here is um, the, the data technicians, people who develop this stuff, need to have a laser-like understanding of things such as what are the data processing principles? Because if they do not know what they are, they cannot develop the software to enable the operators to use it. Um, so, of course, uh, it won't come as a surprise that when I challenged our data technicians, this was an area where they were more informed than informing. They listened. They they reconfigured. But on top of that, I think you touched on the developers being able to provide advice to the operator as to how to use and finesse the software, because it can be an extremely powerful surveillance tool. And, um, you know, for, speaking for myself, from a regulatory background, I actually drafted a, a manual, a privacy manual that was focused at two elements, the strategic element to an organization using our software and then the operator. The strategic element covered governance and ethics and deployment and transparency. And the uh, user, the operator, focused on how to configure the system. And that, whilst it's simple to say, was really complex because you know, I was fortunate I could bring surveillance command and control to those conversations and regulatory control uh, and law enforcement control. Uh, Many, many elements require finessing within a software to allow that. And it, it's an extremely important, important asset that people can configure a system to make it lawful. 
So if you were advising a chief information security officer or chief privacy officer, or indeed you were holding one of those roles in an organisation, not the type of organisation you currently work on, which is producing the technology, uh, what question would you say to them? This is the question you need to ask the people who are coming to you saying, I want to use this technology. The first would be, what governance structures do you have around this request and around the understanding of what it is you want to do? That is the beginning and end. And the sort of things I want to hear is, this has been considered at the highest levels of the organization. We are engaged with our own data uh, officer who understands the, the nuances. We have engaged our local lawyer and uh, are aware of the opportunities and limitations. And now we come to you to understand whether you can fit our criteria. Now, that would be lovely. That is unusual, but it would be lovely. It's more to the point that we would be saying to them, could we have an understanding of your governance? Uh, Are you aware that there are certain steps to go through that are very easily manageable? Uh, But nonetheless, we would advise you to go through it because we want all our clients to have a smooth landing. We want our clients to be able to operate this software uh, in a way that is is seen as supported by the data citizen. Because again, it comes back to that question. If you don't have trust in the technology you're using, then there's probably not going to be trust in the wider business. I think that's I think that's true, and I don't. There's no shame in saying that. I think it's right, and I've got to say, every chief exec I've spoken to. Uh, when I mentioned that, they nod vociferously. In fact, they feel reassured, I think, that they're dealing with a commercial entity that is actually checking, you know, uh, do you have governance? Are you transparent? Have you considered the legal elements? Would you like us to provide a hand and support in that? And you start to have a much more informed conversation. Tony Porter on why it's important for organisations to have a deep understanding of both privacy regulations and the principles behind them before they make use of the more advanced aspects of biometric and surveillance technology. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll look at the topic of digital trust and what that means for identity, security and how we operate online. Our guest is Osaka's Rolf von Rosing, and that will be live on August the 9th. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on the website securityinsights.co.uk or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.